I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and this is the Dying to Ask podcast. If you've been listening to us for a while, you have maybe picked up on the fact that I am a runner. Love to run. People sometimes will ask me for advice on how they, too, can become a runner. How do you do it? So I'm pretty literal. Usually I'll say, well, you know, you put on your running shoes, move your feet a little faster than a walk, add in a little hop every time you step, rinse, repeat. Basic true. The beginnings. It's essentially how Nike became a gazillion dollar business with the slogan, just do it. But it's not that easy, either physically or even situationally. And I know that. The reality is that something like running can be and is often easier for some people than others based just on who they are. And that's what brings me to my guest today and to one of my favorite conversations ever on this show with Allison Mariella Desir. Her memoir is called Running While Black, Finding Freedom in a Sport That Wasn't Meant for Us. And it is one of the best books I have read this year. It is so well written and it may be one of my favorite memoirs ever. Allison got into running as a way to fight depression. And it worked. She regained her physical and her mental health. But in doing so, she quickly realized just how white distance running is. And as a black woman, her experience of going out to train for hours at a time for a marathon is way different than mine. So she started asking herself why, started researching. And what she found is that the answer lies in the running industry and even has roots in white supremacy. The book explains what happened when she crossed the timelines of the business of running and her life. It lays it out in this just masterful way of storytelling. Elson is this beautiful writer. She balances poignant with incredibly funny. (laughs) She can go back and forth like within paragraphs. She does hard hitting with self-deprecating and everything she writes is incredibly relatable about her personal experience. It's not, I mean, it's about running, but it's not about running, if that makes sense. Um, it's, It's just extremely relatable and she does such a great job of getting you to truly put yourself into somebody else's shoes, quite literally. And because she has such a great sense of humor, it just flows. So becoming a runner has taken Allison down a literal and figurative path to activism. She is the founder of Harlem Run. She has created a series of events called Meaning Through Movement, and she's now even a TV host. She recently moved from New York City to the Pacific Northwest with her family, and she's hosting a show called Out and Back with Allison Mariella Desir. And this is a great show where she shows other people of color getting outdoors and tells their stories. It's really great. And it's available on streaming. So be sure to look it up and see if you can catch it wherever you are. On this time to ask, what got Allison out on that first run? What motivated her? What happened when she decided she would launch a running group and then one person showed up for a very long time? Why every training run that she goes on essentially starts with a risk analysis, the leap from becoming a runner to a running advocate how she does and doesn't embrace being a running advocate, the backstory on sharing all of this so rawly in her memoir and why the book is laid out the way that it is and why, in my opinion, one thing specifically that she and the publisher did is so incredibly powerful in the storytelling. 
Allison Desir is my guest this week on the Dine Desk Podcast. Have you ever wondered how did they do that? I do all the time. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick, and Dying to Ask is the podcast that gets me off a TV news set and into candid conversations with authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and influencers I have been dying to talk to. Soak up the motivation that comes from learning how other people live their lives, how they take an idea or a goal, they follow through, and they pull it off. And maybe along the way, I'll get some answers to questions you've been dying to ask. Allison, it's great having you on the Dying to Ask podcast. Thanks so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, you know, when I am referring a book to somebody, almost always, like nine times out of 10, I'll say, if you liked fill in the blank, you will love this. I can't do that with your book. And I have recommended it to lots of people, but I can't think of a single book that reminds me of your book. And I mean, that as the greatest compliment. Your book is so unique. Thank you. That I love hearing that because as I was writing it, and even in the book proposal phase, you know, your publisher wants to know what's this book like? And I kept saying, well, it's not really like anything that's out there yet. Um, I loved the opportunity to mix memoir and history and call to action all in one space. So I appreciate you recognizing that. Yeah. And, and I can imagine that the publisher is kind of like, huh, that's a great idea. The execution of it might be tricky, but I think you nail it. And I think for me, I love a person's story. So I love memoir, but Mm -hmm. I also love the history part of your book. And you, you do something really interesting in it where you, at the I think it's in the beginning of the book, you match up. Two different timelines. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the timelines are so great. So on the left side, there is U.S. running history with all these different dates going back a long way. And then on the right column is Black people's reality that's marked marked up in it as well. And the overlap is so fascinating. And I have never in a million years thought about it like that. Mm. And again, that is really what I was going for. So the idea for the timeline came to me as I was writing this book, thinking about you know, 1963, which is the year that Bill Bowerman put the call out for folks to join him in Eugene, Oregon. And I started thinking about that. And what was the context? I started asking myself, well, where were Black people in that moment? Because I had always heard this history of the so-called long distance running boom starting with that event. And as I dug deeper, I realized, well, we were in the 1963, we didn't have, Black people didn't have the right to vote. We couldn't walk in the front door. In Eugene, Oregon, we only were allowed to own property um, in 1957. So I started to realize, okay, there's a disconnect here between long distance running history and our history and the way that our lack of access to resources, to the outdoors, et cetera, has informed our participation. So starting with that date, I just got into my nerd mode and started (laughs) digging out all these moments. And I, it's honestly my favorite part of the book because I think it immediately reorients people into how they understand running and movement in this country. I've had the book out of my desk at work for a while. And every time somebody walks by, I'm like, oh, what is that about? And I said, well, let me show you something. And I show them the timeline and people, every single person has had exactly the same reaction to it. And it's, it's just really interesting. I think it was such a powerful way to at least tell that story. And as I read the book, I kept going back to the timeline. Good. Okay. That was my hope. And I will tell you back in high school, I never went back to the timeline. (laughs) I was so glad because again, you know, the tough, the difficult part of this was which story leads the memoir or the history. 
And my editor, uh, Trish Daly, who's amazing, she kept saying, you know, folks want to hear your story, which is so funny to me because I'm like, who am I? I'm like, there's nobody. And she was like, no, your story is powerful. You need to fill out, figure out how to put the history into that. But having the timeline was is a solid place where people can yeah. go back and reference. So I'm glad that's how how you did it. Yeah, no, it, I think you nailed it. So let's go a little bit into your story. How did how did you come to be a runner? It was honestly an accident and an accident that saved my life. I was very depressed now um, 10 years ago, and I was spending most of my time on the couch, sleeping in my bed and scrolling through social media. And on one of those occasions, I saw a black guy who was training for a marathon. And in my mind, only East Africans ran marathons. So regular black people from the United States did not run marathons. And this guy was like six feet tall, 200 plus pounds. He didn't have the quote unquote body of a marathon runner. So I thought, okay, well, this is strange. I'm gonna follow his story. And anybody who's a runner knows that we love to evangelize. So he was doing that. <laughs> yeah. He was talking oh, yeah. about the spiritual encounters he was having on the run and the way. So, <laughs> so irritates our worst habit. It's I, so irritating. Well, listen, he so got bad. me. He got me. I was like, man, this dude cannot stop talking. But I also thought, well, maybe what's happening to him, this like spiritual, emotional, physical transformation, maybe that can happen to me. So he completed the marathon and I started reaching out to him and asking him things like, do you eat when you run? Like, what if you have to poop? Like, what, how do you run for so long? Very valid he, questions. <laughs> and he answered all of them. <laughs> By the way, if you have to poop, you poop. Um, yep. And I decided, you know what, like, let me give this a try. Um, if I, my life was going in a direction that if I didn't do something, it wouldn't get any better, right? Yeah. So New Year's um, came, came and went and I decided to sign up for the same marathon. And I ended up raising over $5,000 for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And I also began evangelizing people and realizing. All right, okay, sidebar. My yeah. first marathon was team and training. And you oh, talk about, amazing. oh yeah, yeah. Yes. The, the proselytizing, I was team. all in. <laughs> All, all in. And I loved it, but there is something about, and they were the first people to really figure out, like you could do fundraising through an athletic event to bring attention, but specifically money to something like cancer research, which was brilliant. Now everybody's copied it, you know, which is fabulous. Which is wonderful. Yeah. yeah, Team training. If you've ever thought about it, it's a great way to get yourself into it. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, I remember learning that too, just, I believe it was in the eighties, just how innovative, I think it was a father whose daughter might've been sick and just to recognize the power of connecting all of these elements. So yeah, it absolutely changed my life. And, but one thing I did notice is that there weren't a lot of people who looked like me in the program or on the marathon start lines. And I said to myself, what if I create a community that centers our, who we centers people like me and that creates a space where more black people can run because I knew. And so you're living where at the time when you started this? I was living in Harlem, Harlem, New York. And so I said, yeah, if it, if it saved my life, it could certainly save other people's lives. So it started, um, that started Harlem run, um, again, just from this very personal experience of knowing how it changed my life and sort of the, the hope that I could share this with other people. In the in the book, when you're talking about starting your running group, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's like like any club you start, um, you really wonder, like, is anybody going to show up? And for a while, it was a little iffy. 
that was the question I asked myself every Monday for several months. <laughs> when will something show up? And my mother, thank goodness, I would call her every Monday and she would say something to the effect of like, if you build it, they will come, right? Like, <laughs> people are watching and they will come. They want to know that you'll be there. Um, I also started in November and she was like, wait till it gets warmer. And sure enough, you know, people started coming little by little. And I pretty quickly realized that they were not coming for me. They were coming for the sense of community, for the mm -hmm. opportunity to um, be a beginner at something, to make new friends. New York, and much like any city, can be such an intimidating place. So yeah. having the activity of running sort of break the ice uh, was powerful for people. And that's what they were drawn to. They were drawn to this opportunity um, to actually know people in a city of however many millions. Yeah. There's something about the movement too, that I think kind of frees you up to talk to people. Cause you're not necessarily looking them in the eye. There's no, and eye contact. Yep. no, there's no eye contact. You, 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 in your brain think you look amazing. You really don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> very, very few people do. Um, and there's something about it, just that movement. It just, to me, it always just kind of relaxes the conversation. Like I get to know people Absolutely. so much better on a run than yeah. I do sitting across from them at a table or, you know, or at work. Um, I wanted to read um, the very first part of chapter six, because this absolutely spoke to me. It starts off, when I finished my first marathon, I felt like I had cracked the code to human existence, hence the talking incessantly about running. We were just yes. talking about <laughs> there was no shortage of runs. It started with a problem that somehow got resolved over 45 minutes of pounding the pavement. There were runs when I zoned out in the thought of nothing, filled with rare and unexpected moments of freedom. There were runs fueled by anger at past mistakes, my arms and legs charging forward so fast that I felt as if I was chasing myself, chasing my life. That mm. just, I think to anyone who has run for a reason, mm. regardless of whatever reason why you run, I think that that speaks so much to just the thing that happens inside of people that makes you just either feel better about yourself or question where you are, which I think for you is kind of both, right? Exactly. Yeah. That's what I found to be so powerful that, and you know, there is, there is research into this about the connection between um, your movement and your brain. Um, and it's, it's the truth, just movement allows you to gain new perspective, it allows you a way to be more rational about problems that you're having. It also there are, there are moments when, as I said, you zone out and you get into, uh, I mean, I feel like it's more rare for me now, <laughs> you get into the zone. <laughs> And everything just clicks and it almost feels like it's not my body, right? Like yeah. whose body is this that's moving so fluidly and everything is locked together. And that's, that's what I love about running that it's never the same experience and that um, the run continues to teach me things about myself and the world. I've been running for decades and I couldn't agree with you more. So as you find this kind of inner salvation or this inner peace through running, at the same time, it's becoming glaringly obvious the disparities within mm. the running community and specifically distance running. Just for your background, I've covered the last 10 Olympics. So I've been around a lot of track and field athletes mm. and I've done... I've covered a lot of like short races, distance races, and I have thought a lot of things in your book. I have thought about these things mm. um, and never really verbalized it out loud because I didn't really know what the right words were, but mm. boy, you explain it in, mm. in such a, an eloquent and really clear way. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, the thing is when I say to people or what my book is about and they say, well, what are you talking about? Because the winners of all the marathons are black people. And that is true. The winners of marathons are Africans, right? These are folks who are coming from Kenya, from Ethiopia. And there's a real difference between how long distance running has been supported 
and um, recognized in East African countries versus mm -hmm. in the United States for Black African Americans. And so that's the distinction that I want to make. Also, we know that in track and field, in running and in sprinting and jumping events, those events are mostly dominated by African Americans, Black Americans. And in my book, what I talk about, well, there's several factors. One of them is the eugenics piece and the tie to slavery, right? This idea that many people still believe um, they don't know that it's rooted in eugenics, but they still have this assumption that somehow Black people are just faster and stronger. And in my book, I show how those were these racist ideas that really aligned Black people to a subhuman species, right? As if we had something more in common with, with animals that gave us this, this propensity to be better at sprinting and jumping. The other piece of it regarding long distance is for, for so many years, the running industry has said things like, all you need are shoes, you know, just show up, go running. When in truth, you need access to safe streets, mm -hmm. to clean air, um, to those sneakers that cost 150 <laughs> to $250. Uh -huh. You need psychological safety, physical safety. And if, if you think about racism in this country and how it has led um, a, a lot of black people to uh, under-resourced neighborhoods to uh, more dangerous neighborhoods, then we certainly don't have everything it takes to go outside for a run, right? So there's a whole wealth of, or there's a whole a bunch of reasons why um, the sport is segregated the way it is. And I ask people to really think deeply about it. To your point, you may have seen this, but not um, really question why that's the case or thought how this might be tied to history or racism or white supremacy. And, and my hope is that this book starts to answer some of those questions. And I think that that's why the memoir part of this is such a powerful way to explain it, especially mm -hmm. when you talk about safety. Mm -hmm. And safety as a black female runner versus safety as a black male runner versus mm -hmm. safety as a female out there. They're all different. My husband yesterday, so I'm now in Seattle, Washington. I went running at 11 a.m. The sun was shining in the middle of the day. My husband decides at 5.30 p.m. he wants to go for a run. The sun sets at five. And I'm like, what a, what a privilege it is for you to go outside. Of course, he's a black man, so there's also some risk there. Mm -hmm. But I just don't go running when it's dark out. That is just a rule, right? And that's as a black woman, I imagine as white women, like that is just something we know not to do. And it's something that my husband doesn't think twice about, right? So there yeah. are, this is an intersectional issue and there are, each of us has relative privilege and um, each of us is also marginalized to a certain degree. And I, I wanted to make sure that my particular experience, I, you, you enter into my shoes and you start to understand what it's like to live in this world as, as I do. And I think even if my experience is different than your experience, and it is, there are elements of it that I can still relate to, that exactly. we have all had those moments where we have felt unsafe based on who we are. Exactly, exactly. And things and that we don't change. And I hope again, like that there's, you know, what this creates is empathy. It's that, wow, my lived ex experience, I'm the expert of my own lived experience, but I can now understand what it could be like for another person. And how can I be an ally to that person? Or how can I at the very least say, I see you, right? Your yeah. experience is valid and important. When did um, different brands start noticing who mm. you were and what you were doing? And what was that experience like? So my first, uh, my first relationship with a brand was in 2015 and the brand was Under Armour. And I remember being so, hold on one second. I have to start that again. What do you need, baby? 
and now he won't talk. What do you oh, want? Oh, it's okay. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> He's talking nonstop. I love it. You know what? I'm leaving that in too. You've got a, your little three and a half year old in there. You're yeah. under management these days. I know my son is okay. Well, when oh. you, you let me know. Um, the, best. So the first was, <laughs> was Under Armour. And I remember um, being so honored and excited, but also not really having an understanding of what the running industry was, right? I knew what uh-huh. the running community was. I was part of that. I was building community, but I didn't really understand that these brands, that they're making money off of getting us into the clothing and therefore yeah. with us was because they saw an opportunity to essentially make money from us in their clothing, right? So I didn't understand that. I I saw that it was this, I felt like it was a validation of what I was doing. And to a certain extent it was, but it also was a financial and marketing opportunity, which I've now come to understand. And I talk about that in my book as well, right? That because these brands are looking to make money off of us, it can't be, well, I believe it shouldn't be a relationship of just extraction of what they're taking from you, of what they're getting, but how are they also investing into your community and making sure that they help shift the narrative around who belongs in long distance running and uh, and how you know how our communities can thrive. I've had this conversation with a lot of Olympic athletes, and what we talk about is the platform. Yeah. Yes, there's the opportunity, and everybody who gives you money wants something. Exactly. But there's also the platform and what you decide to do with it. And at some exactly. point, I would imagine, given what you had come from in terms of the writing and the community you were building, you have to decide what am I going to do with it because it's a unique opportunity to be a voice. Exactly, and it's also uh, you know that not all money is good money or whatever the thing is that you have to recognize that, um, you know, taking money from somebody, yes, there's an expectation. And also you then become aligned with whatever that brand stands for. Right. So how are you? And it's difficult because all of us need to make money and we can't be martyrs. Right. But the idea is, are we aligned with this brand or organization that's giving us money? Or is there a real disconnect between what that brand, who that brand is, or what they say they are, and who you are, and what you're fighting for. These are all questions that I've begun to think deeply about as my platform has grown and changed, and as I've gotten more opportunities. It's grown a lot and quickly, hasn't it? <laughs> it, it <laughs> I mean, you got a lot going right now. I never, if you had asked me 10 years ago, well, first of all, I never would have thought I would make it out of that bed off the couch, yeah. um, let alone now to have um, a career that is very non-traditional, but so fulfilling. And that allows me to really create space for my son to live authentically as himself, right? My dream ultimately is that the industry and the community, when my son decides to start running, um, people don't even think about it. You know, like, yeah, of course, you know, young black kids, they run, right? Yeah, he can run marathons. He can do whatever he wants. It's not even, not even a question. So you're living out in the Northwest now. Yes. Um, what brought you out to Seattle? We were living in the Bronx, New York during the pandemic. And I remember there was a time when we were, because of the COVID pandemic was raging and I understand it, but we were not able to leave our houses, our our homes. And we were in 700 square feet, which I understand is actually huge in New York terms. And I just thought to myself, like, this can't be it, right? I, I don't want, I want a backyard. Um, I want to live in a place that doesn't have such terrible health disparities. The Bronx is regularly rated last in the um, in health ratings for the for the city of, or for, for the boroughs in New York. There's poor air quality, there's noise pollution, there's violence, a lot of things that are standard in in, in cities and particularly cities um, 
in areas that have black and brown folks. So I thought to myself, if there's anything that I can do to give my son a better opportunity, then I will. My husband happened to get a job in Seattle. I got an additional sponsorship that allowed us to move and buy a house. And I can't tell you, it was like night and day. <laughs> coming, leaving the Bronx and coming here. Um, there was a lot of culture shock because of racial demographics, because of um, just how people move and engage. People say that New Yorkers are mean, but there's, I, New Yorkers in my mind are the most honest and upfront people. Well, you know where you stand, that's yeah, exactly. for sure. And, yeah. and in Seattle, they call it the Seattle freeze where you don't know, I'm still trying to figure out if people like me or not. <laughs> um, but what it gave us was an opportunity, like I said, to buy a home, which I feel so grateful for. Um, we have lake access. Um, my son goes to forest school. So all of these opportunities what, what is, what is forest? Okay, That's, forest? That is the most Pacific Northwest <laughs> thing I've ever heard of. It is. And he has this little rain suit that he wears when he goes oh, to forest schools. Essentially you have, um, it's, it's school that takes place outside. And so um, all of your lessons are rooted in, in nature. And um, you know, we, you literally, no matter rain, no matter what the weather is, you're outdoors and picking things up. And it's funny because my son, when we moved, he was like 17 months and he hated to get his hands dirty, like, <laughs> like typical New Yorker. And now he plays in dirt and he's touching, you know, worms and stuff. So it's an opportunity for, for kids to not only learn, you know, whatever scholastic education, but to gain a connection to I the love land. That. And, and hopefully that makes him a really good steward of the land as he gets older. Oh, I love that. You know what I love that for? It would be just for mental health in general for kids. Exactly. You know, Mental, just that outside connection to me. And, you know, I realize that it is, it's a luxury and, and it's a privilege and, and it shouldn't be, right? That's mm -hmm. part of, um, there's a chapter in my book called Everything is Connected. And that's where I really connect the dots and, and, and show um, how lack of access to the outdoors, lack of access to nature, lack of access to safe streets, et cetera, um, are harming folks. Mm -hmm. We deserve, we all deserve better. You're also hosting a show called Out and Back on PBS. Yes. It's really good. Will you explain what that's Thank about? You. Yes. So that also was a complete, um, you know, surprise to me. I had been on a panel with this woman named Sarah Menzies uh, three years ago, and it was a great panel. We were talking about the outdoors and the work that I do. She then found out that I moved to Seattle and she was, she is the executive um, producer at Crosscut KCTS9. So she asked me, have you ever wanted your own TV show? I said, um, yeah, <laughs> actually, I wanted to be an MTV VJ for a lot of my life. So oh my I, God. I said, absolutely. And she said, well, what would your show be about? And I thought about just the, you know, moving from a place that's very racially diverse to a place that lacks that diversity and wanting to find my people. So I pitched a show where each episode would follow a Black, Indigenous, or other person of color in the outdoors, reclaiming space, um, doing what they love. And that is now the show Out and Back with Allison Mariella Desir. And I get to do things like fly fishing and kayaking and skiing, all kinds of really cool things that are um, that folks like me are doing here in the PNW. I especially love the fly fishing one. That was, I think, my favorite. I watched a couple and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. That was so beautiful and peaceful. And what I realized, you know, so I, that episode is um, I'm alongside Giancarlo Lawrence, who's, a, who's an angler. 
And I, I only thought about the actual like fishing part, but everything from, from making, the, uh, uh, making the flies mm -hmm. to, I'm trying to think of all the language, but every piece of, uh, every step of the way with fly fishing is a meditative experience, right? It you, is. Can't, you can't be really fast and you can't be thinking of something else. You have to be focused. And, and that's such a beautiful thing. I, I hope to incorporate that more into my life. And you know, what's amazing about it. Um, I get to do a little bit with some family up in Montana is that mm -hmm. even if you're with somebody and you're making your fly, your head is down. So you're not, again, it's kind of like running. You're not looking at each other as you're talking, but it's a slow conversation and it's never about fishing. It's always mm -hmm. about other things. So it's a wonderful like entree into having those conversations. Um, you do a lot of public speaking as well. And I'm curious to know what's been the reaction for you the last couple of months since doing the book tours, since going to marathon expos and having a chance to really talk to large groups of people. Mm -hmm. What's the reaction like? Mm -hmm. I have to say the reaction has been overwhelmingly positive. And I think you know, that, that, re, that reassures me that there's hope for humanity, right? I will, the negative responses that I get are generally trolls or people that are sitting behind a keyboard and um, saying hateful things. Yeah. Now, just because the response is overwhelmingly positive doesn't mean that everybody agrees or understands what I say. And that is, that's fine to me. That's what I love, right? We put our stories, we put our ideas out there in order for them to be engaged with and discussed and digested. And that's been really powerful for me to have people come with questions and leave with a deeper sense of understanding, or maybe they don't understand, but they have empathy and they're uh, committing to learn more. Like that is, that is what I think is the human existence. We can only know what we know, but on our time on this earth, we should push ourselves to, um, to connect with other people and, and make all of our lived experiences better. So the only, I've, the only harmful things are, like I said, um, folks in dark rooms behind. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? They're never going away and right. they don't ever, they never leave those dark rooms. So it's right. fine, you know, until their mom calls them up from the basement for dinner, I think. And then you're fine. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I would say is that I feel like in the last few years, especially sitting down, having a conversation with somebody and just saying, can you help me understand? Mm. I don't understand. Like there's a real freedom now where, like I was telling you at the beginning of the conversation, I would look around a marathon corral and see hundreds of people. And I remember looking and thinking, this is the whitest sport ever. Mm. There are so many white men in this sport. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like now where I wouldn't have like, felt comfortable to have the conversation or wouldn't have necessarily even occurred to me to mention that to somebody. Now I feel like I can sit and ask a question with somebody um, in a little bit freer way. If it's genuinely coming from a, help me understand, mm -hmm. you see things different, your experience is different. And I think that's a really good thing that there, these conversations are at least starting and books like yours are helping us um, understand, think, and as you said, hopefully be a little bit more empathetic to each other. Absolutely. I think that is, that's something that I'm, I'm I feel really encouraged by. And again, I don't understand. There's so much that I, I don't understand. There's so many questions that I have. And to your point, what I always say is that if you're coming from a place of curiosity, if you're stumbling with your language, because you've honestly never said these things before, then I am here to have that conversation, right? If somebody is coming from a place that's intentionally, uh, that where they're intending to be harmful um, then that's a whole other story. And I'm going to, you know, immediately withdraw and try to protect myself. But if you don't, if you don't know, if you've never met somebody with any kind of difference from you, then you're going to have questions. And I think it's important that we provide space for those conversations 
um, that we that we do our best to engage uh, to whatever extent we can, right? And I, I, even things like, and I think about also how having a son has um, helped me gain some empathy. You know, he'll say things, so I have my hair locked and he asks me about my hair because he, well, I'm the only person he sees with locks also because we live in a very white place, but he asked me questions about my hair from a curious place and I recognized, yeah, that's, I'm totally open to answering questions like that. It's yeah. when somebody says, can I touch your hair? What's this, what's going on? And I feel like I'm a science project that there's a difference, <laughs> right? But right. I think we, we just have to understand being curious is important. Our difference is our strength. So the more that we cre can create that space for conversation, the more that we can then move to policies and creating spaces where we can all thrive. Do you ever get tired, emotionally tired from these conversations? Because the running came from being in a place of mm. depression. Mm -hmm. Is it hard though to always be the voice? Does that make so, sense? It absolutely does. And I um, thank you for saying that. I've also become much better with my boundaries. Mm. And so I, I'm a very public person and yes, I use my voice. But two things. One, I also say no a lot. So if you see how much I'm doing, imagine just I'm on top of that, I'm saying no. Um, and I also know that I'm not the only person. So I regularly um, collaborate with other folks, say other people's names for opportunities, right? This is not, I recognize that if we do it as a relay, I'll have more energy. <laughs> if I'm doing Smart. the whole thing by myself, I can't. And then, you know, when people ask me really deep questions in my DMs, I just don't answer, right? Like there is a time and a place to have these conversations and it's not, um, it's not a DM. It's not a DM. It's not a quick text message. It's not a, can I pick your brain? Right. So recognizing, um, that I only have, but so much energy and time and using that in the most impactful way. And when I'm with my family, I'm with my family when I'm, um, when I'm off, you know, I don't engage. Smart. Very smart. So what's next? What are you going to do next? What are you so working I, on? I'm really excited that uh, season season two of my TV show, uh, we've been greenlit, as they say. So look at starting, you using the buzzwords. I know. <laughs> starting, starting filming for season two. And I learned so much that first season. There are things that I look at that I do that I cringe and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not doing that in season two. Um, so I'm really excited about that opportunity. And I also want to write another book. So I'm just thinking about um, a children's book and what that could look like. And um, I fantasize about having my book tour being like my son and I traveling the country and going to classrooms. So season two and, and working on a book that will be um, a much lighter book and, and one full of a lot of joy that my son can be part of. I love that. I love that. What, do you, what are you running? goals these days. Do you oh have any, my God. any good races? Are you, yeah. Do you have time to run? <laughs> I, yeah. So that's part of my boundaries. And, you know, it's, I kept after giving birth, I'm now, my son is three and a half after giving birth. I kept wanting that moment to come where I would feel like myself again, and where I would want to run. And I thought that every six months I'd say, Oh, now it's now, it, now I feel like myself. No, now I feel like myself. Now I truly feel like myself. It's a new version of myself but I am running, I'm running um, a 5K at the Publix Atlanta Marathon weekend. I'm running uh, the Cherry Blossom 10 miler in DC. I'm running the Eugene Half Marathon. And it just, it feels so good. Like things are yeah. clicking again. And 
my body is not the same as it was, but I'm learning how to move and appreciate this body. So it'll be better. It'll I'm be better. Excited. Cause you're going to, so you're going to appreciate it in a whole new way, a yes. whole different way. What are the best ways for people to keep in touch with you? you my website is Allison M as in Mary Desir.com. My Instagram is Allison M Desir, Twitter. Um, I also have a Patreon, but you can find all of that information on my website, allisonmdesir.com. And like I said, I love having conversations. I love engaging with folks, just not in my DMs. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are both on that one together. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has just been such a pleasure and I wish you nothing but luck and really lovely soul affirming runs in your future. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. I was just looking at Allison's website and I noticed that she has two upcoming running retreats. One of them is a trail running retreat in Alaska, which sounds amazing. So if you want to check it out in the show notes for this episode, you can go right to her website. And maybe that's something you might want to join in on. I would. Next week, we're starting a series of spring-themed shows. The change of seasons can be a great time to make some personal changes. So we're going to be talking about some of the best life hacks ever some of them are your suggestions, and also how to spring clean your brain. All of that coming up the next few weeks on the Dying Desk Podcast. Please make sure you're subscribed to the show, and if you could, take a second to leave a rating or review. Even hitting five stars on your podcast app makes a huge difference. I'm Georgia Fitzpatrick, and I'll see you next time.